Hey, I'm Will, and this is Benj. We're both church planners trying to work out how to form churches in this post-pandemic world. I lead a church that's trying to grow big. And I lead a church that's trying to grow small. But we share an interest in the beautiful and diverse future of the church in Australia. What will it look like? How will it adapt and innovate and thrive? If you're asking these questions too, then join us as we host a range of conversations with diverse thinkers and practitioners around what comes next. Welcome to the Forming Church Podcast, brought to you by Gen 1K and our vision to see a thousand healthy churches in a generation. Well, dear friends, this is a roundtable episode. What does that mean, Bench? Well, it means we are continuing the conversation from last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen to that. That will give you context for what we're talking about today. Jamie Freeman and a couple of friends that he's pulled in are going to go through that episode and kind of help to unpack it and flesh it out in different contexts. So this is your chance to go deeper and consider what these ideas might look like where you are. This episode is sponsored by Baptist Financial Services. Invest with purpose. Find out more at bfs.org.au. In last week's episode, we heard Will and Benj interview Megan about diversity within the church and how to engage well across the diversity. And in our roundtable discussion today, I have with me Louise and Gray. Welcome, guys. Hi there. In unison. Well done. (laughs) Amongst diversity. Can you share briefly a bit about your ministry, your life context, and uh, just so our listeners can get to know you a bit better? Thanks, Jamie. So my ministry context is actually in uh, kids and family ministry in a movement setting, uh, supporting, resourcing, equipping churches, but also trying to advocate for, a, I guess, a paradigm shift in the way we see kids um, in, in our churches, the way we disciple them, minister alongside them. And in my life context, I think, uh, yeah, just trying to be part of a faith community and my neighbourhood and uh, loving and caring for my family. And for me, I'm a teacher by background, actually. I was a primary teacher for a number of years and then uh, came to Moreland College and then came into Baptist ministry. I've been a pastor for a number of years. And in the last couple of years, I've been working in the association in the area of leadership development. And that's really something that I love to be involved in and, and meet people who have sensed a calling on their life and try to work through with them what does that mean and where can they go and how are they gifted and what that means in community and in movement as well as uh, trying to develop in partnership people's gifts and calling. That's fantastic. So you obviously are both exposed to a fair amount of diversity, working with a diverse group of churches and leaders and also being a part of local churches yourselves and the diversity that comes from that. I wonder what stood out to you in Megan's interview. I think the thing that struck me is... uh, the level of impact that social media has had. It made me wonder about what was diversity like 50 years ago? What was diversity uh, like 20 years ago? How polarised were things? Surely people disagreed. Is it actually now that social media exposes us to more people, to more voices, and in times just you know, creates what people call that echo chamber or amplifies our view. So thinking through, uh, you know, 
Dunbar's number, that theory about our outer circle and how many we can be connected to, 150. Well, between my church and my workplace, there's more than 150 people I'm connected to, let alone than my friends on social media. So the impact that that has on our ability to share ideas and appreciate diverse views and yet really know people. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think part, part of that flowed in for me and how we do that. And I think one thing that st- stood out for me in the um, discussion was actually the idea of grace, which seemed to be a word that came up all the way through the discussion. And I, at the beginning, uh, that phrase of, I think Megan said, it's often missing or misunderstood in the discussions on in diversity and indifference there. Um, but grace is so key to us in our in our faith and key to the message of Jesus. And I love the way that it was portrayed as inviting people into transformation. And that often can happen when you are exposed to other people's opinions and thoughts. And out of that, with grace and difference, can come transformation, I think. So that was really uh, something that stood out for me. Can I mention one other thing that stood out for me? Go for it. Go for it. Excellent. Um, the discussion about the phrase, we need strong leaders. And it was a discussion that was wrapped around the idea of uh, the prophet and who is the prophet and where are the prophets and what all that means. Um, And what is a strong leader, I think, is worth exploring more even at some point. Uh, Of course, someone who is Christ-like was one of the answers there, which I think is great. Um, And about his grace and his interaction, Jesus' interaction, as not always being warm and fuzzy, but sometimes that strong leadership is misunderstood and is used in a, a, a way that could even be abusive. And yet we do need strong leaders, but graceless leadership is toxic, but grace-filled leadership is powerful. So I think that whole discussion really stood out to me and made me think in my area of how do we develop leaders, the role of grace in developing leaders is a key, maybe less explored area. We're often on about competency and and connectedness and all those things, but where does grace fit in the development of a leader I think is fascinating for me and I think is something I need to think about a bit more. You made me think about the idea of empathy Mm. uh, and emotional intelligence So a grace-filled leader is perhaps somebody who sees, really sees the people that they're leading. And if you really see or really know a person that you're leading, uh, then there shouldn't be as much room for that toxic kind of um, leadership. That Will's comment about it's hard to hate a person you know, Mm. and I think that that word know, it's not know of – because that's just an acquaintance, but the person you know and understand who they are as a human being, what's what drives them, what hurts them, what encourages them, that changes how you respond to people. Mm. And I think that stood out to me both in relationship and in grace. This, this idea of proximity is so important. Uh, and in order to engage across difference, we need to be close to people. 
and uh, and yet often that's not the case. Whether it's social media, but even in our in our churches, what we're seeing, um, we did some research recently into regional models of church, and the drive time in regional models of church is higher because people are traveling further for programs and a particular style. So they're actually not being exposed to people in their neighborhood, which came up in the interview as well, but people who are different to them, people who might think different, people who might look different, uh, because diversity is broad, isn't it? It's bigger than just um, theological differences, whether you're left or right. There's there's so many differences that we come up against in our everyday lives. Uh, Louise, I know for you, there's there's generational diversity that's really important that often isn't seen in the church. Did you want to jump in on that? I'm sure. I think we th- convince ourselves that it is seen because all these generations are present, but we form these you know, that whole phrase of the homogenous unit principle, we form these little homogenous groups within uh, our faith community and we don't really know each other. And when when we can't tell each other's story, when we aren't part of each other's story, we're just travelling on train tracks beside each other, that's not deep community. And so I think we fall for a shadow uh, version of what is actually Jesus' vision for the church. Yeah, and I think the whole idea of the algorithm, which we've we know what the algorithm is when it's applied to social media, the the thing that creates the bubble that means you don't get outside your own feedback loop. I, I, loop. I think we've got a, a expanded version of that. Certainly, I've seen it in the faith community, but it's a societal thing where we surround ourselves with people who are like us, and maybe because of fear of conflict or or just because it's uncomfortable to engage with those who are different and diverse either theologically or culturally or generationally, I think we I reckon we do a few things. I think we disconnect first, so we think this is too hard, so I'm going to disconnect, and then we depersonalize as um is the second thing. And I do that. I do that on when I watch reality TV. Like I say horrible things to contestants on Survivor behind the screen. Like <laughs> you should be on Gogglebox. Gogglebox I just refuse because of that to watch, I think. But we depersonalize people that we are disconnected with. And that's that comment that you uh, uh, quoted, Louise, it's hard to hate someone you know, which was raised in the discussion. We depersonalize, but then it's too easy to go the next step and we demonize people. So, and that's when we really impose on them things that are just unfair to impose on them. And then it's too easy to go into that loop of remaining disconnected because you don't want to be connected to anyone who've you, who's a demon like you. And then it's just this loop of disconnection. And so we need, really need to break that down because the Bible is full of relationship, mm. not disconnection. And so we need to get back into the diversity of people that Jesus himself actually connected with, I think is astounding in the Gospels. We're so culturally removed from and historically removed from that. I don't think we get the impact of it. But he spoke to and connected with people and got busted for it by the religious leaders because he shouldn't have been doing it. And yet the Gospel lived in the diversity of the people who encountered Jesus. And I think we've lost some of that. That was the beauty of the early church that drew others to it. Look how they treat children, look how Mm. they treat women, look how they treat the orphan, uh, look how they treat their slaves. It drew people and I think we need to get back to the ability to serve and worship together. Mm. Hashtag fight the algorithm. There we go. (laughs) And it was... More than just a ministry to, it was a ministry with and amongst, wasn't it? I think, Louise, what you're yeah. getting at. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's great. Great. And I'd love you just to go through those four Ds again. Yep. Can you remember them? I think it was three. But three? yeah, we disconnect, then we depersonalize, then we demonize. Yes, and then it loops back. And then it loops to, back to disconnect again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's super helpful. Thank you for that. So for you guys, as you reflect on this idea of diversity and communicating across difference, how do, how's this reflected in your own experience, in your own life, in your own ministry? I was struck by a personal experience of this in the last two weeks. Um, how I just know how easy it is to write off someone or everything about someone based on one experience of them. Uh, so l- last year I heard a pastor speaking and uh, in, in another movement, so, you know, not, not like me, and described children as a rate-limiting factor when it came back to coming back together in COVID times. So I had written this guy off and then recently I, somebody had posted something else that he'd said. It was like I decided before I read it what it was going to be and that I wouldn't agree with him. And then I read it and then I listened to where that quote came from and I was reminded what somebody says about one thing does not make that person. How I feel passionately about one issue doesn't mean that that person should be written off if we disagree. And it was just a great reminder to get to know more about a person, uh, not just not just their highlight reel or the hashtag that is out there or the controversial comment, but to know them more than that. Even though this is a person I might ever never meet and it's just, you know, in that social media circle, it's a good reminder to have a little more humility, Louise. Mm-hmm. I think in my experience, because um, I speak to a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders throughout our movement and also beyond our movement as well, one of the things that sort of has started to annoy me a little bit is the categorization and the siloing that we place on each other and trying to fit people in in a false way into those categories particularly the words left and right um, which is just a societal thing that now the church is starting to use that language in how we box ourselves in or those who are slightly different are different to ourselves but I've tried to be bo- people have tried to box me and they've probably tried to box you guys in as well as whether you're on the left or the right who is your tribe but I think wow my uh, my position on different issues, which are often categorised or belong to the left or belong to the right, are not that easily categorised because for me, I try to develop my opinion of issues through a Christian lens that comes from the gospel, not primarily from a political party or a, or a side of uh, left or, or right. So that, that really, um, I, I get quite annoyed <laughs> about that language, but it also reminds me that um, once we do that, we, it makes it, again, it's the depersonalizing thing because then we're just talking about a left or a right rather than a, a human being. But I think um, in James 1.19, we have a, a way to deal with those who are different. So everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry. But when it comes to left and rightness and other categories, we tend to reverse that completely. We're quick to get angry, then we're creating a speech in our head and we're actually not listening. And so I think as we move around in circles of leaders and pastors and churches, I'd like to people to flip it back over to the biblical model of listen. Listen first, listen long, listen hard, 
and then think about what we're going to say and leave the anger part till right at the the last point. I mean, yeah, Jesus threw over some some uh, you know tables in the temple, so there was some passion behind it. But um, I really liked circling back to the discussion how it did highlight that Jesus' passion in that regard and his anger in that regard was directed towards those who should have known better, who were in leadership, religious leadership, and in my view were actually keeping people away from the gospel. There's one good way to keep people away from the gospel, be angry first, just think about what you're going to say and then put listening last. And slowing down is so countercultural, isn't it? Totally. And we in we categorize people so that we can deal with them in quick and efficient ways. And yet Jesus was always being interrupted and slowing down and engaging with individuals. And so yeah, I think that's really profound, just flipping that and and coming back to what we see in James and and moving through that really powerful stuff. If you guys could ask Megan a follow-up question, what would it be? I'd love to ask uh, Megan a little bit more about the idea of prophets and their role and what how how God places them today in the church. How many do we need? Uh, you know, the times of Israel, there's only sort of one or two roaming around at the time and they didn't have very uh, encouraging or affirming things to say. I mean, they spoke what God was telling them to say. I guess... I'd like to explore a bit what's the difference between speaking passionately and speaking prophetically and when are we hiding behind the spiritual title of prophet when it's just passion? Mm. I've been impressed um, by the way that Megan, when she does interact on social media, um, not only addresses issues but actually does so in her totality of how she uses social media as a vulnerable real person which counteracts that depersonalizing aspect that we've been mentioning. So I'd like to delve in that more with her actually. How does that, because that's a hard balance to actually keep. And with things like how many times has she been told that she shouldn't engage in a certain topic because it's political? I don't even know actually what that means, political. I think that's a confusing thing for me when someone says a Christian shouldn't address the topic of refugees, I was told once, because it's political. And I'm thinking, well but the gospel speaks into what it means to be vulnerable and how we should be treating those who are vulnerable. And Jesus has got things to say to people of all types of, and we're all created in the image of God, so how can I be forbidden from actually speaking into that from a Christian worldview because it's political? I don't even know what that means. So as someone who, uh, with Megan, as she addressed a lot of those issues, I'd like to delve into that a little bit more and seek her wisdom on that. It's great. And if you could suggest a next step for someone wanting to explore um, anything that we've talked about today, yeah, what would that be? Um, I think uh, for me, get back to James 1.19 and flip that back to the biblical view, listen first and then speak second and leave the anger right to the very, very end. Um, But also I think it would be good for us as pastors and leaders, I'm thinking particularly because that's my space, um, to not get into the disconnection, depersonalizing, demonizing system or loop and therefore engage and take every opportunity to engage with people who are not necessarily in our strict tribe, however we define that. And 
there are lots of opportunities to do that. There are pastors group, there are networks, there are regional things within our own tribe, our own larger tribe, our own Baptist tribe, in which there is diversity. There's cultural diversity, there's generational diversity within spaces that we try to facilitate and we're intentional about, deliberate about creating such environments because it's hard to hate someone you know. So it's good to be in conversation at our gatherings or, or literally the gathering or whatever it is to be able to connect and build relationships and in those contexts, listen first, speak second and be angry absolutely last. I think a follow-up step is a little bit of self-reflection. How many people who are different to me in age, experience, um, theologically, on particular issues, uh, do I know? I mean, really know. Have I had a more than how are you going conversation, explored an issue with them? Uh, I heard a pastor recently say that two of the barriers to unity are either self-protection or self-promotion. And I think that's a good thing to take some time to think about. Why do I not know anybody who is 85? Why do I not know anybody who thinks that, uh, thinks differently to me on this issue? So am I protecting myself or my view or am I only speaking to those who promote me and my view? Thanks, guys. This has been a really helpful conversation. And you too can join the conversation at the Forming Church Podcast Facebook group and follow us on Instagram.